Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Assistant Athletic Director and Director of Strength and Conditioning at North Carolina State University, Bob Alejo. Thanks for tuning in to episode 132 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I have on someone that I can't believe that I've not had on before, in Bob Alejo. So we discuss everything from power training to training power, so two different things. Um, the role of the sports scientist and how the strength and conditioning coach is actually the sports scientist or should be at least practicing sports science. Um, as well as many of the things um, that I'm sure you will find really valuable from Bob. Anybody who's in strength and conditioning, if they're not a sports scientist, they should be or are one right now. Uh, what we do is science. Now, I'm not a scientist, but what I do is based on science. So I want to keep this introduction nice and short, but one thing I do want to do is thank today's sponsors, two of today's sponsors, who are Valve Performance, makers of the Nordboard, and Train With Push, makers of the Push Band. So just linking in with the guys at Push, uh, a recent article on strengthofscience.com by Tom Turner, at Le- the strength and conditioning coach at Leinster Rugby, recently did an article on developing maximal strength through the use of velocity-based training. So if you haven't checked that out, make sure you check that out. It's not only a, a theoretical article about velocity-based training, but there's a lot of applied stuff in there of, of around how Tom actually uses velocity-based training uh, with his actual athletes. Uh, again, not just regurgitation of a book, but actual data from high-level athletes. Um, so that's a, that's a great article that I definitely, um, definitely encourage you to read. So enough about that. Uh, over to the at, uh, over to the episode with Bob. Um, hope you enjoy, and I'll speak to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I have the pleasure in speaking to Bob Alejo. So welcome to the podcast, Bob. Thanks, Coach. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure to have you, mate. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, just want to give us a little bit of background uh, about you and what you're currently doing, what you've done in the past, education-wise, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Wow. I summarized 35 years as quick as I can. You know, I've, um, right now I'm, uh, finishing up my term at uh, North Carolina State as the assistant athletic director, director of strength and conditioning. Um, I'll be leaving here at the end of June. Uh, prior to that, I was with the Oakland A's baseball team and MLB twice for about a total of almost 13 years. Um, from 84 to 93, I coached at UCLA and uh, was an assistant strength coach and director of strength and conditioning there. Um, I think they just called it conditioning coach at the time. And those During those days, there was only two guys at just about every school in the country in the 80s. It wasn't 13 or 10 like we have today. But uh, So, you know, essentially, I've, I've coached at UCLA. I coached at UC Santa Barbara. Um from 2005 to 2008. So essentially went 84 to 93 with UCLA, went 93 to 2001 with the A's, 2002 to 2005 or so. I was doing my own thing privately and 
Then I went to uh, Santa Barbara 2005-2008, back to the A's in 2008. And then in 2011, I came here. Um, and within those two times, I was also uh, fortunate to be on two Olympic teams, uh, the one in London and the one in Beijing for the United States uh, with men's beach volleyball. And, and uh, fortunate enough to come away with the gold in uh, Beijing. And um, other than that, that's about it. My career, I've only been in five places. So I haven't, uh, haven't been in a lot of places, but I've been in good places. Nice. So what was it like being around the uh, around the Olympics in London and Beijing? Oh, I mean, I don't think there's any comparison really, you know. I mean, I'd already been involved in in the Rose Bowl, national championships, All-Americans. Uh, you know, I'd worked at – when I was at UCLA, I ran into a number of athletes who were at the Olympic level already. So, you know, had been associated with some – high-level track and field athletes and World Cup athletes and NBA, I mean, really everything. But when you get to the Olympic Games, it's much like you thought it would be and more. I mean, it's a it's a whole different thing. Uh, I, I, the only way I can explain it in terms of winning the gold in Beijing with Todd Rogers and Phil Dalhauser in the beach volleyball tournament was – you know, you can win the national championship or you can win a conference championship. But when you win the world, it's a really it's – it's something else, man. It's something else walking down the stadium steps to watch the match. And a lot of the athletes are still around even though they've been eliminated. And they all recognize you and wish you luck as you're walking to your seat to watch your team play. I mean, I mean, it's a phenomenal feeling. Yeah, but – I bet. So, would um, I mean you mentioned a little bit of time that you had doing your your own stuff privately? Is that something you'd consider doing again? I would. I would. Yeah. I don't know to what level I did it. I just was lucky to be able to do it at the time. First of all, I, I was I was single at the time, so that allowed me a little more flexibility. But I felt at the time that I could, you know, write a book, and I did. We wrote about Joe, Dr. Jose Antonio, who's a, one of the co-founders of the ISSN, International Society of Sports Nutrition, and I wrote a book called um, On Baseball Training. And um, um, it was really the first book on nutrition and, and training for baseball. It was called Double Play. Um, and then I started a website and just had – chances to do some things but uh that only lasted about almost four years and then i knew i had to get back in the mix again but uh i, I would i think it was fun it's it's fun being your own boss i mean obviously mm -hmm. but but with it came a great deal of responsibility i mean you have to be on the hustle as much as you can and that's why i have a tremendous amount of respect for those who go out on their own and do their own business because you don't you're not guaranteed anything. And uh, frankly, I need a little bit more of a net to land in than that. <laughs> so is the, is the business side of things something that interests you? I mean, I know when you're in, the, when you're in it, you ha it has to interest you because if you don't, you don't get any money. Right. But is it something that you, you enjoy, that the kind of the business side of things? Well, I did at that time. I did at that yeah. time. Okay. I mean, you know, I mean, when you have people depending on you, um, 
Uh, the only way I can explain it is, I mean, I think people who jump out on their own and have their own business and and have to go for the hustle every day. I mean, I think it takes big balls if if I can be <laughs> as crass as that to, to, to go out there and stick your stick your chest out and work like that. I mean, I I have so much respect for people who've done that on their own. Um, but at the same time, I you know. I, there also is some downfall to it too, because you are your own boss. You make your own hours, and that that push has to be twenty four seven. Where it's not quite that same when you're working for a ball club or a university. It's not that your intentions or your intensity is any different, but uh, I mean, there is the security of an organization, you know, giving you a salary. Yeah, I mean, with with so many students, graduates coming out of university and college every year, there's with only so many jobs. I mean, I know there's there's obviously more jobs, like you said, in, in college when there used to be two and now there's 12, but that isn't going to keep going and going and going to actually cope with the demand of people wanting to get in jobs. So I'm guessing there's going to be a lot of people out there who are going to have to go on their own and have to do their own thing. Is there a certain person that you think is uh, character-wise that could succeed in that, in that realm rather than... Um, someone who maybe more suited to college are, are you are you one of the the kind of ones that are more suited to have an employer have you seen guys out there who have got certain characteristics and certain skills that are more suited to the private sector well i i think we all have a certain ability to do that i mean I, the way i would frame it rob is to say that you know the criteria for your working conditions change from time to time. Sometimes you get in a spot where you're working and you're not quite happy with the job or the administration, the way things go, and all of a sudden your your mind opens up to other opportunities. Um, and then you're in positions working for organizations, much like I had with the A's, where you know you feel like you could work there forever because you're feeling so much support and and things are going well and there's good communication and. And so during my time there, then um, I, you know, I, th- I thought this would be a huge opportunity to continue to improve and and perfect my craft. But then, you know, again, criteria changes on and on. I think we all have it in us. And, you know, it's not a matter of working hard or being hesitant to attack the work. It just demands a certain environment from you to be able to figure out which direction you want to go in. So I, I don't know that it's all that easy to say what type of person that is because sometimes it's the conditions uh, and not the person. Uh, but, you know, certainly your choice is yours. But I, uh, like I say, I think, I think the criteria of what's going to be fitting for you as a professional is uh, I think it's always changing. I really do. Do you think, I mean, I know you have a, a number of interns there. What do you see in the kind of guys straight out of university and straight out of college? Do you think they have quite an open mind with regards to which kind of uh, environment they work in, whether it be professional sport, collegiate sport, private, or do you find that a lot are, kind of one-track mind with they want to work in the NFL or NBA or whatever it may be? 
Well, I don't think it's a one-track mind. I mean, I think our, our – in fact, I know our, our interns who come here want to work in the college environment, and, that, and I think that's why they're here. But again, you know, when you think about criteria or you think about how much information do you have to make an informed decision at the time when they come here, you know, so we have interns here that are between, you know, 22 and 25 – Somewhere in there, the amount of experience they have only lends them to a certain amount of information. By the time they leave here, they'll have more information. So I would venture to say that their clarity on their position is much different over a year's time being in this environment, being mentored by full-time strength coaches who've done this for a while, or in particular, someone like me who's been doing it for 30 years and has seen a big evolution. So um, it's hard to say that when they come here, do you see them in a certain way? I would say the answer is that yes, but I think that's only based on their experience. Uh, as they leave, I think they're open up to many other avenues. And then it's just a matter of them to decide on what they want to do. So one thing I want to um, want to chat about on this uh this kind of came from the, the little discussion we had uh, previously, and that was uh, an SNC's well, strength and conditioning coach's perspective of sports science. And I mean, I'd be interested to to hear your take on the kind of evolution of sports science in the states, and how maybe you, as practitioners over there, as strength coaches over there, see sports science, maybe see sports science internationally as well, and where the US fits in that in that evolution. Okay. Well, first of all, I think anybody who's in strength and conditioning, if they're not a sports scientist, they should be or are one right now. Uh, what we do is science. Now, I'm not a scientist, but what I do is based on science. So I have a hard time thinking that when you look at sports science in general, when the way it's presented to us is we're having somebody read data some tracking data, some information. Most of the stuff is tracking data, heart rate data, GPS, accelerometry, all that stuff. And telling us, here's what I saw. To me, that's just reading a computer. I mean, there's nothing scientific about those numbers that are coming out. Behind the numbers and how you interpret it, there's some science to that. But I think that, that, the, that the idea here in the States, certainly there's, you know, the sports scientists in, in the United States right now are strength and conditioning professionals. More often than not, Catapult, First Beat, all these tracking companies, they're presenting their product to the strength and conditioning professional. They're not presenting to somebody in a lab coat or somebody with a, you know, a pocket protector with a ruler and pens in it. They're, <laughs> they're, they're presenting this. picture behind now. Yeah, 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 right? So they're presenting that to strength and conditioning coaches. So it's not caught on here in the States in the way that I see it presented over in Europe, uh, you know, Australia, New Zealand there. I mean, that's that's – I think those sports scientists have a really good grip on and connect well with strength and conditioning coaches and they're, they're separate. I think the communication there is better. I think what we've seen here is probably too big a gap in those that are saying they're doing sports science or they're sports scientists. I'm not interested in somebody just reading the computer number to me. I mean, my my nine-year-old son can do that. He can look at 2.56 and 800 and 
uh, 32 inches and whatever that is, that's, that's easy. He can read that. He doesn't know what it means, but he can read that to me. So I, I don't find any skill in reading that at all. I think the skill is interpreting those numbers in terms of analysis and intervention. So when you tell me, hey, here's, here's the, the load of a match, a uh, rugby match, uh, a soccer match, a football game, or here's how many high-velocity uh, runs so-and-so made, that's the same as the sky is blue and the grass is green. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested, okay, what do we do next? Now what do we do? And we don't talk very much about here's the training program. The thing that we don't talk about is something that's really evident. The thing that affects and that we only talk about most is game and practice data. What we don't talk about is the thing that affects those two things the most is training. What happens in the weight room? What happens in conditioning? What happens in all those things are the ones that affect that the most. I put a post out on, I don't know, a year ago about sports scientists. And when, he, when, when I hear the word sports scientist, I think of Mike Stone. I think of Andy Fry. I think of Jeff Stout. I think of Jose Antonio. I think of David Zemanski. Those are sports scientists. Those are people who are performing the scientific method on performance variables to see what the outcome is of a certain protocol. That's a sports scientist are looking at athletic movement, physical movement, and figuring out what happens and perhaps why it happened. But when I see somebody just reading stuff off a computer, I have a hard time putting scientists onto their name. I think there's a place for it for sure. I think right now in the United States, the person most capable of performing that task is a strength and conditioning professional who can do like what I've done and what my staff done is they're going to look at the tracking data. They're going to come to a conclusion and alter the training around it to change those numbers favorably. That, that to me is, is actionable. That to me makes more sense. Cause I know there's been a bit of an influx of guys from the UK and guys from Australia into the U S what's been the, the kind of consensus around that kind of influx? Has it been a kind of welcome with open arms or has it been a bit frosty than that? Oh, God, I mean, I don't, I don't know I that I'm the – Yeah, I don't know if I'm the United States spokesman for that, but – No, no, no. <laughs> the ambassador of sorts. I, I, well, I mean, I would say that – so if, if – unless the work became just so chaotic that – if somebody say, hey, Bob, we hired a sports scientist that they're going to load all the data for you, which isn't hard to do. Like the, the computer does that. You don't have to do anything. You just plug them in and it loads it down. And they're going to present the dashboards to you. I mean, I guess that could take a little time. But, but if you call them sports scientists, I'd say, well, I mean, we can have somebody in computer science do that over in, in the graduate school. I mean, in fact, we do some stuff right now. We're trying to work on, on uh, data collecting platforms and things that – you know, students can do It's not that big a deal. And they don't know, you know, in fact, you might talk to some people that say you're almost better off having somebody in that role not know anything about the sport. Just look at the numbers. That way they don't give them, they don't give them to you in a biased fashion. But it, I think it would just it, – it could be that it's a little bit insulting to say, well, here comes somebody that has no idea what 
these velocities mean one way or another. It's they're just telling me something. I still have to look at it. I still have to figure out how I'm going to talk to the coach about this drill and that drill. I mean, I think the problem is when you come from predominantly one sport and try to track another without any knowledge of it, that's tough. I mean, you need to know the drills. You need to know the sport. You need to know those things are very important. Much like in our job as strength and conditioning coaches, when we work with the football team, the basketball team, the tennis team, we need to know the movement analysis and we need to know the energy sources involved or we can't write any program that would be effective. So I don't know that I don't know that we're upset as much as surprised. We have people here that have been doing sports science as strength and conditioning coaches a long, long time. I mean, if we talk about the era of big data, my um, my response to that is, has data ever not been big? I mean, we have certainly a lot more data to look at, but even though we were using, you know, vertex and squat maxes and 40-yard handheld times uh, in terms of speed, we were tracking then. We were looking at those numbers and saying, okay, here's our numbers. What's our next move? What's our next block of training to make those numbers get more favorable than they are. So we've been tracking a long, long time in a lot of areas. Just because we're not using computers then doesn't mean we weren't. Strength and conditioning people have been involved with data forever. I mean, it's all it's all about feet, inches, yards, seconds, kilograms, poundages, all those things. So uh, the data is not new to us. We're familiar with it. We're familiar with the sports and all that stuff. So I think I would – I would encourage anybody who's not doing that to, to get on it right now. And uh, first of all, I'd be surprised if they haven't. I mean, how would you write a program if you're not analyzing and evaluating the data? But um, but we should we should be the sports scientists. We're the ones right there with the chalk and the sweat on us. I think it's important that, that we're closer to it. Do you think – I mean, you said it already. You probably know the answer. Do you think the term sports scientist is a bit of a hindrance to those that – want to practice sports science and in the in the eyes of the coaches because it does give that perception of they're going to turn up with the kind of glasses on the end of the nose and a white lab coat <laughs> and a roll in the pocket yeah you know yeah, I, it doesn't help does it no i think i think it's quite the opposite i think if yeah I, I think unfortunately the title to the sport coaches and general managers can be misleading at times i think they think they're getting something you know when you say hey Here's a director of strength and conditioning, and here's a director of sports science. I think when you think about a level of knowledge and application, the sport, the director of sports science, well, let's go to him. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think it's quite the opposite, Rob. I think I think they're getting enamored with the title and what they think could happen out of it, and I don't think it's quite there yet in the United States. I think it is over in Europe. Um, and in the places I mentioned earlier that, you know, it's very much a part of the process. It's very, a very cohe- it appears to be anyway, a very cohesive, interdisciplinary, uh, actionable group. But here, I think, you know, if you look, at, you see sports scientists being hired, I don't know that you're seeing somebody who understand what happens in the weight room, what happens on the field during conditioning and movement and all that. And those things play a big role in what you see on the field so in other words 
you know, if you don't know the drilling and you look at somebody that that isn't running fast enough or doesn't have the right player load, you're saying, oh, we need to practice less or we need to practice more when in fact it could be they're not strong enough, they're not fit enough, they're not flexible enough, they don't move efficiently enough. None of those things show up on a computer, but it's none of that's lost on the strength and conditioning professional who's watching it and using the data to confirm what they know to be true. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Bob. I hope you're enjoying part one. So in part two, we get into more of the training chat, talking about power training um, and the transition from traditional strength traditional strength training into a more power train power training dominant program. But just before we get into part two, I want to say a massive thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring the episode today. So Fatigue Science are working with a number of clubs, so four Premier League clubs, three AFL, three AFL teams, uh, Seattle Seahawks, who were the uh, number of the staff who introduced me to, to Fatigue Science, um, Dallas Mavericks, uh, Canadian Rugby Canada, uh, Houston Texans, Chicago Cubs, the list goes on and on. So there's a number of uh, services that Fatigue Science offer, including sleep screening, um, including lifestyle education and analysis of a team schedule to identify pro- potential problem areas within the schedule and offer solutions to minimize the potential sleep disruption in that time period. So I definitely recommend you check them guys out. So if you go to fatiguescience.com, there is all the information on there um, and you can also follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. So I hope you enjoy part two coming up with Bob and I will speak to you soon. So I just want to move on a little bit uh, and I can hear weights been dropped in the background, which kind of brings you on nicely to the next uh, next. Oh, you can hear that? And that's training for power. <laughs> Absolutely, it's brilliant. Someone's yeah. getting some work done. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, training for power, um, especially with inexperienced lifters, and that's obviously something that you've got horrendous amounts of experience with. Um, but I'd love to um, to get your thoughts on that. Well, I think it can be confusing, you know. Coaches will ask, sport coaches will ask, and even some strength and conditioning coaches about, you know, what what's the best way to start with young athletes? You know, should we start with power training right away? And Robert Newton's done some great work on this, um, and as well as others have too. But uh, I like his work on it for the most part because they talk about Getting strong. And strength is really the basis for all movement, all effective uh, force delivery type movements, whether it be power or not. you got to get strong first. I think what, what, you, what you fail to understand with young athletes is when you're getting them strong, that is training for power. When they get strong enough, then that turns into power training where you're starting using lifts that have velocity-reliant movement to it, like the cleans and the jerks and the snatches and even plyometrics, things like that. So I think that, you know, oftentimes we feel like, okay, you know, we got this freshman in here. We're going to start to teach him to clean. You know, I've gotten away from that totally, especially with freshmen. In fact, 
will do Olympic style deadlifts because eventually I am going to get them to pull a high pull and clean and snatch and jerk. But I'll take those those young kids and we'll do Olympic style deadlifting for almost a year before we move them into something quick because we'll find out that when they get strong, they get more powerful. It's that point where you see the, the strength acquisition start to to kind of tail off a little bit. That's the point where you have to, you know, intuitively or at least visually by looking at some of the graph data that you say, okay, now we have to start moving the bar faster because now it's easier to get faster with a bar than it is to go up because we've hit close to the ceiling of our strength acquisition. So I think the biggest thing that, that, that comes to my mind about this is being able to tell young coaches, you don't have to hurry in to power training. You don't have to hurry into cleans and jerks and dozens and dozens of plyometrics right off the bat. Just get them strong. Get them strong. You'll see them jump higher and run faster. You don't have to worry about that. That's simple, basic physiology. Mm-hmm. So that can, that can in your program, guys can be kind of on that, say, non-power, but that kind of goes against what you've just said, but non-traditional power program yeah. for like a year, 18 months? Uh, I wouldn't go, well, I wouldn't go 18 months. It's probably going to okay. be more like a, probably 9 to 12 months based on the academic calendar typically. But but if you were in a, in a situation where you could wait, so you know as a freshman they're going to be a sophomore and a sophomore goes with a junior. It's not like a another athlete that it's not – um, bound by a time period, but we try to get them, you know, at least get them to, to just work on strength for nine to 12 months and then start going into something a little bit quicker. So it would be, I mean, essentially what it comes down to is one is you're training for power later. You're going to do power training, but both of them create a more powerful athlete. So what would be your so to, to to bridge that gap between the two? I don't, I don't suppose it's a gap, but to create that bridge, what would be your kind of first port of call on the power training side of things? Well, I like to high pull. I mean, I've gotten away from the power clean uh, and probably lean more Why towards. Well, to the four cell. Well, so there's been lots of good stuff coming out. Tim Suckamel, Paul Comfort, and they've done some really, really good stuff. Well, first of all, you know, if we if you if you understand the lift, you know that once the bar gets about waist height, the force on the bar is a is zero, and um, by the time it gets up to the top end, you know, you're going to start reducing the velocity. So if that's the case, at the top of the, of the second pull, once you've shrugged and pulled on it, the lifts, the, 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 the mechanical part of the lift is done at about somewhere in between, at least in a high pull, not in a, an Olympic-style squat clean. Um, the lift is done between somewhere between, you know, the belly button and the sternum. You're really done lifting the weight. And so, because there's so much technique in catching the bar, I don't have to worry about can he catch it? Does he have the right form? Does he have the right squat catch? Is he squatting quarter squat, half squat? Can he turn his wrist? Can he get his elbow up? I just know he can go into a straight vertical motion, elbows high, nice and tall, bar up to the sternum to create force. And if you look at the velocity and the power output, if you track it, you'll have a higher power output with high pulls than you will with a clean because you can pull more weight. 
and you can pull it higher without having to catch it. So that's what I've gone to because I, yeah, I'm not worried so much about catching the bar. If what we're trying to do is to produce power, there is no power in catching the bar. Catching the bar says you've cleaned it or you haven't. But keep in mind, catching the bar is not the only thing. Where do you catch it? Do you catch it in a quarter squat, a full squat, a half squat? Because if you are testing the power clean, everybody there catching the clean has to catch it at the same depth. Otherwise, your, your data is not reliable if you're going to take any kind of any kind of average or standard deviation or small worthwhile change out of that. So I, I go to the high pull itself. In fact, I, I like the high pull so much and that and kind of not happy about the clean, although I, I you know, if I find somebody can do it, that's fine. I'd rather go into a snatch where now I can get total vertical acceleration to the top and catch it overhead without stopping anything. So you mentioned there uh, a little bit about testing. What kind of what kind of testing in the weight room are you doing with your guys? Does that vary from sport to sport, from experienced to not experienced? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think it depends on what the lift, but, but essentially we stay with, you know, your basic, the bench press, mm-hmm. the squat, the, uh, the high pull. The high pull is tested at sternum height. That's a okay. successful lift, and it's technically sound. So in other words, if you can pull the bar to sternum height – but your, your first pull, your back has been over and your legs straighten out too soon, even though you reach the bar, proper bar height, the lift will not be good because then, you know, you're, again, your, your data is not reliable because if you're going to take that as a max, then it just makes it more skewed as you train going forward. And that 70, 80% gets the breakdown because that 80, 70% that you're taking is off a bad max. So that's going to be a bad percentage, but you know, we'll go snatch, um, pretty basic right there. There's nothing, you know, the deadlift will be with the freshman again, all technically driven. Um, if you reach technical failure before muscular failure, that will be your max. So, uh, that's kind of the list we do. Is that is that technical proficiency um, just on on coach's eye there and then, or is that done post post testing, looking at kind of slowing things down and and whatnot? Uh, it's mostly the coach's eye. Although we okay. do video, we do video, but I think it's it's pretty hard. It's pretty good to see and easy to see what's right and what's not. You know that it's it's um, it's one of those things that you know for sure. And you know, which is another reason why you know I've kind of. Uh, steered clear of the clean. Uh, there's a couple, but the other reason is th- they're not weightlifters. So if I'm looking to do a squat clean, if you look at a, a regular Olympic clean at the World Championships or the Junior Championships, they're pulling that bar at maximal speed, maximal height, maximal tension, just to get it to where it gets. What you'll see in our groups here is they will never get to that weight. So when you might see some squat cleans, but you're not going to see anybody squat clean a weight that is at max height, max pull, max load, and get right underneath it. Very seldom. I mean, it's, I would say seldom as in rare. What you're going to see is athletes pulling the bar up just high enough to get underneath it, where they can have a weight light enough to manage it to get underneath it. And, and again, we're trying to get max power, so that means you're decelerating the bar. And again, we're getting away from what we're doing. We're not cleaning to clean. We should be clean to get max power. And if we're going for max power, we know the pool has more power in it because we can use a little more weight at 
at a, at, at a little lower speed, perhaps, but with a higher power output. So when you say, obviously, that the guys that you're training aren't weightlifters, they're basketball yeah. players and, and soccer players and tennis players and whatnot, when it comes to kind of sport-specific stuff, is that is that something that's going through your mind, whether something that you're doing in the weight room is sport-specific? Yeah, it's interesting you should mention that. I, I've, I've got a – I wouldn't say a pet peeve about that, but, I mean, sport-specific is something that, that got brought up years ago. And, and the way I like to talk about it is – so if you're doing sport-specific, it's either super sport-specific or it's not even specific at all. Yet we call training sport-specific. So let me give you an example. If the program I'm writing for you makes you swim faster, run faster, makes you reduce the incidence of injury across your team, then I would say that's sport-specific. Uh, it could be that, you know, if, if, if you need to get put on more muscle – to be a better athlete. If, if in our mind we felt like you'd be more durable, you produce more power, if you put on more muscle, then an hypertrophy program for you would be sport-specific. Um, but when you talk about on the other end of the spectrum, there's nothing in the weight room that you'll see anybody do look like sport. Nothing. You can make it as sport-specific as you want, but essentially it's not going to look like sport. So that's where you say, okay, so what is a sport-specific program? I mean, I think there's been a, dozens of definitions out there, but I, I think sport-specific is a little bit – it's a little bit misunderstood and maybe misused because when you say – Sports specific, like the power clean sports specific for sports that jump. I would say, yes, if jumping's a big part of it, then yes. But do you bench press? Does the bench press look like something you do on basketball? You could say no. Then you'd say, well, then why you do it? My response to that is because upper body strength is important and the bench press is the best pressing strength exercise, then I would say that the bench press is sport-specific to basketball. So I think it's a really very ambiguous term in a lot of ways, but I'm hesitant to use that term. You know, like you, you, know, you have a sport-specific program. Well, I mean, it's like, it's like functional training. When functional training first came out, I said to myself, what the hell is that? You know, like if, <laughs> if I looked at somebody on a ball doing a dumbbell press, I would say there can't be anything less functional than that. Why are they calling that functional training? I could respond kind of in a, a flippant way and say, well, I've been doing functional training since 1981 because the programs I gave to my kids made them functional in their sport. Therefore, I'd say it's functional training. So, I mean, I don't know why we come up with some of these terms, but I think sport-specific, Rob, really comes down to does this affect in a positive way the major movements and the major energy sources of your sport? I mean, that, that's the only way you can really generalize because really the movements that you see, they really aren't like sport at all. I don't, Again, going back to the, the coach's perception of these kind of things, I don't think that term helps – strength and conditioning coaches when they say that term 
because yes. it gives completely the wrong impression for technical coaches who maybe don't know the context and don't know what that term, what is meant by that term. It do, does give the impression of something that's going to look exactly like the sport. So oh, I would agree. Oh my goodness. Hey, that's well put, well put. And that's, I mean, that's why I think, you know, we, and I've come out, you know, again, nobody loves what they do more than I do. I mean, I, it, my career has been so giving to me, but at the same time, I'm critical of our profession as much as I am a proponent of it. I mean, think about this, Rob. How many professions do you know change the name of things so often? How many professions do you know that one position can have six or seven names? Like when you're an yeah. accountant, you're an accountant. Yeah. But a strength and conditioning coach, high performance director, director of strength and conditioning, conditioning coach, director of athletic performance, director of sport performance. Right? I mean, come on. So, I mean, I think this sport-specific thing, yeah, it actually kills you because you'll have coaches now. They'll keep saying that. Well, do you have a sport-specific program? And, I mean, I, I don't even bother going into it. I just say yes. I mean, yes, yes. yes because whatever we do makes our players, you know, physically better. Now, do I say they're going to score more goals? Well, they got to be good first. I mean, I there's nothing I can do in here to make them score more goals. If they can kick the ball already and they're pretty good, I can help them be faster maybe. But in the end, I, I just make it real simple. Our job is completely based on making our athletes run faster and jump higher. If whatever you're doing is doing that, and I, and I say those two things because the physiological connection and correlation to so much really has to do with running faster and jumping higher. I mean, look at, look at endurance runners. There's endurance running information on those that jump higher, endurance athletes who jump higher than other endurance athletes run faster. Now they're not they're not running you know in the nines in the hundred meter sprint, but they are running faster. So I mean I think in the end it, that's our job, and the rest is just recruiting and play calling and substituting and all that stuff, which we don't have any any control over. Nice. Well, I'm just going to round up there because I know um, I know you're busy and I know it's the middle of your day over there, so I'm just going to ask you to. Um, Tell people where they can keep in touch with you. I know you're pretty active on on Twitter. What's your what's your social what's your Twitter handle? Sorry, uh, what is it? I think it's Coach underscore Alejo. Nice. And pe- people yeah. can get in touch. That's the best place people can get in touch. I think so. Yeah, that'd be the okay. best place to go. I throw some out there every now and then. I respond to everybody. I think that's. I think well, I think it's my responsibility. You know, I mean, look look at what you've done with your uh, podcast. I mean, you've done a terrific job, Rob, getting getting the word out on several coaches, and and I think the variety that you offer it's important. I mean, it's it's easy to for especially young coaches to listen to people that talk about the things that they believe in, but you're not going to get better doing that. I think you're going to get better challenging yourself to listen to something you don't know much about or listen to something that you fear a little bit, you know, and listen to what they say because, it, you know, it's like reading research, you know, it's going to confirm or deny whatever, you know, what you already know. Either way, it's still good. Cost. Cost. Well, um, yeah, I'll, I'll direct people to your Twitter page and people can uh, people can get in touch and ask you questions off the back of the episode, which I'm, I'm sure they will, and that would be, that'd be great to, to hear. Please do. Um, so thanks, Bob. I really appreciate your time, uh, and I'm going to let you go and get on with your day. Thank you so much, and have a great day, Rob.
You too, mate. Speak soon. Thanks for tuning in to episode 132 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Bob. Just before I let you go, just a massive thanks to Valve Performance, makers of the Nordboard, Train With Push, makers of the Push Band, and Fatigue Science for all sponsoring the episode today. The podcast could not continue in its current form without them guys, uh, their support and encouragement. Um, so I really appreciate all the three uh, sponsored the podcast episode today. So definitely recommend you check out Tom Turner's Velocity Based Training article on strengthofscience.com. Got some great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks and I hope to speak to you soon.